0: Great to be with you all again. Today we're going to look at James 5, 1 through 12. Is money good or bad? Is being rich sin? What should we do with the money that God has given us? These are some of the questions which we're going to take a look at today in James 5. My name is Jason Dexter and my goal is to help you study and obey God's word one passage at a time. So let's go ahead and read James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So a key point in the passage today is, a warning to the rich. And in the second part of the passage is well what to do if you are not rich and if you are poor. So let's go ahead and begin. We're going to read through verse 1 one more time. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So the first question I want to ask is is being rich sin? James says You rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Well, sometimes when we read a verse like this, we might get confused. And it will be helpful to look at the whole broad look at, at all of scriptures as we zoom out to take a big look at this question. So, sometimes God chooses to bless certain believers with great riches. Abraham, Job, Solomon, and many others were wealthy. In fact, God specifically told Solomon that he was going to give him great riches. Money is neither good nor evil by itself. It's neutral. It can be used for good or for evil. But the desire to get rich is the problem. And many people who are rich then are not using their riches how God wants them to do or perhaps they're even getting their money in a way that is not right. I'm going to look at another reference, as you're probably very familiar with, 1 Timothy 6.10. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So we see here, and we'll see later in James 5, that the problem is loving money or desiring money Uh, ...in in a way that leads you to do things that are wrong. Uh, For example, exploiting one's employees in order to live a life of luxury. So James describes the rich as greedy and selfish to get more money. And then once they had it, they used it on themselves instead of on glorifying God. They used it on themselves to satisfy their own passions... And we see that uh, back in James 4, verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So many people uh, in James' world, they wanted to get more money, not because they wanted to serve God with their money or even to meet their basic needs, but they wanted more money to get their passions, to satisfy themselves with the things that, that they wanted of course this is why many people want to get rich even today they want to buy more stuff they want to buy bigger or more houses nicer cars they want to have nicer vacations they want to get nicer stuff so what is the right view of money well first of all we should remember again that money is not evil however and it's even more important to know that Money is not the key to happiness. It's neutral. There is a right way and a wrong way to get money. And there's a right way and there's a wrong way to use money. Now, it's very clear in Scripture that loving money is sin. 1 Timothy 6.10, the verse we just said, when you love money, it's the root of all kinds of evil. So we need to be very, very careful that we don't love money. We need to be very, very careful that we have the right view of money from a scriptural point of view. And we should ask ourselves, do you love money? How can you even tell if you love money? Well, here are a few tests you can use to discern if you love money too much. If you find yourself often thinking about money or materials, and how to make money or buy more things, then it could be a sign you love money. If money is a major topic of conversation between you and your friends and family, and most of your conversation with them is spent talking about how to make money or plans on how you're going to spend your money, then perhaps you love money. Another test, if you're often comparing yourself to others, perhaps someone in your family or your social circle, And you're comparing with them the amount you make or the possessions that you have. Maybe you're comparing yourself with others out of pride, thinking, ah, I've done pretty well. Or maybe out of jealousy or envy, wishing that you had what they had. Either way could be a sign that you are loving money. Another test could be if you are very stingy. And if people come to you in need and you find it so difficult to give it to them then that could be because you're loving money. Or maybe you don't even need many things which you purchase, but you get a thrill out of buying expensive things and taking selfies with these things and then posting them on social media to show what nice things you have and how good your life is. That could also show you're focusing on the wrong things. If at work you're always scheming on how to get a promotion or always thinking about changing to a better paying job. That could be a sign that you are loving money. Now the right view of money is that money is a tool. It's a tool to provide for ourselves and our families. If you remember, even Jesus paid tax and at one point he owed a temple tax and so he told Peter, go fishing and then you'll catch a fish and inside the fish there'll be a coin and then go to pay our taxes. So Jesus also used money. But he said, give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Money is a tool. Now, whatever we have, we should be content with it. It is certainly not sin to plan for the future, uh, to have a financial plan or retirement plan. But as we learn in James 4, it is sin if we are making a plan about the future and we are not taking God into account. We're not praying and asking God, God, what do you want me to do with my future? Do you even want me to retire or should I keep on working uh, in this job because it's a way to serve you? We must ask God this question. We must be genuine in seeking his answer, not just make a plan the same as all of our neighbors doing the same thing as the world and then saying, God, please bless it. The rich people here in verse 1 allowed the love of money to take over their lives and to lead them into all kinds of evil. Now because of their lust for money, they're going to face judgment from God. And it says that miseries were going to come Upon you. Now we will see in later verses here that these specific rich people James is talking to were exploiting others in order to get riches. So their sin was not having money. Their sin was their attitude toward money, the way they approached it, the way they got it, the way they used it. So let us consider ourselves, our own attitude toward money. Do we love money? To such an extent that we would be willing to sin to get it i heard once a story of someone who said everyone has a price and he offered to pay a person to do something wrong and he started off offering them a small amount of money like five dollars they're like no i wouldn't do that for five dollars but then he offered more and more and finally he found the price that they were willing to take in order to do the sinful thing And this story illustrates that many people are willing to sin, but maybe they're not willing to sin for a small amount of money, but they would be willing to sin for a large amount of money. If you are ever willing to do any sin in order to get money, or in order to save money, then that shows you love money more than God. Now, the second lesson from this passage in verses 2 to 3 is that money is temporary. It says your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, perhaps James' words are somewhat prophetic saying what is going to happen to their money. But because God knows the end from the beginning, these things are already sure. This is what will happen to all money one day. Money is temporary. Now there are no earthly materials or riches which will not fade away eventually. Take a moment and look around the room which you're in right now. Take note of the most expensive thing in a room. It's temporary. Perhaps the phone you're using to watch or listen to this on is temporary. Your television, your computer is temporary. In fact, Every single thing you see is temporary. I want to read a verse from 2 Peter 3.10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Everything will one day be burnt up. Everything you see is temporary. It cannot be taken with you into heaven. Now they actually, the only thing in the room with you right now, which is not temporary, is the soul of people. Your soul and any other people around you, their soul as well. People, people are not temporary. Our body is, our flesh is, but our spirit is not And so that means that if you do have money, you should use that money to invest in God's kingdom, an eternal one. Gold and silver you cannot take with you. They can rust, they can be stolen, and they can fade away. My grandfather worked much of his life to, uh, he was a very hard worker, he was very diligent, and he saved up a very nice amount of money. And he invested it with a seemingly very reputable agent or company, and then one day he got a call. The money was gone. Just like that, the work of his life was melted away. The money was all gone. Now, sometimes the money which we make will disappear like that in our world, and our life right now. Or sometimes when we come to heaven. Either way, money is temporary. Now, central governments around the world now are printing money at record paces. And they're even giving us money every month, perhaps. There's stimulus checks and there's child tax credits. And and the governments are just giving out money. And to do so, they're going into record debt. Now, fiat currency has a 100 percent fail rate if given a long enough timeline. Now, my point is not to to bash currency or to say, oh, we shouldn't use it or anything like that. I just want to let you know that money is something that can lose value very, very quickly. So don't place your trust in it. Now, in 1914, for example, Four German marks equaled one US dollar. Nine years later, in 1923, one trillion marks equaled one US dollar. People had to use a wheelbarrow to push huge piles of money around just to try to buy a loaf of bread because money was worthless. It really wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. You could just burn it for fuel and you would get better value out of it than trying to spend it. Now we've all heard stories of people who have lost their fortunes by theft, bad investments or fire, or perhaps medical bills. Now even if you manage to get through your whole life and hold on to your money, then you can't take it with you. Perhaps you use U.S. dollars or British pounds. What good would those be in heaven even if you could take them with you? Of course, no good at all. It's a different type of kingdom and it doesn't operate with currency. So many people spend their life getting riches and buying cars and getting nice stuff, but one day they're going to face God. God will say, show me what you did with the resources I gave you. Maybe people will like to pull out their car keys of their expensive Teslas God will not be impressed at all. In fact, here James says that these things would be a testimony against them. A testimony declaring how foolish it is to place hope in money. Now some say, yeah, yeah, I know. I know I can't take it to heaven but I'm sure going to enjoy it here on earth. But actually rich people are not really more satisfied or happy than poor people. They always want more and their riches lead them into many kinds of sins that perhaps they wouldn't be exposed to or tempted by if they remained poor people who are rich would have a hard time not focusing on preserving and increasing their money there's a verse i want to read to you from proverbs 30 verses 8 and 9 remove far from me falsehood and lying Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So the writer of this proverb wisely realizes that when you have a lot of money, it opens the door to temptations, to pride, and to self-reliance. We need to be very careful that we have the right attitude toward money. So perhaps you are rich and God has made you so. Great. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to him and then generously use that for his service. In the next part, we will see the sin of the rich So these are people who were mistreating their employees. They worked them really hard, but they did not give them fair wages. They didn't even give them what they had promised. They apparently promised certain wages or salary, but they didn't deliver, unfairly withholding what was rightfully due to their employees. They made themselves rich on the backs of the overworked. They cared not about the suffering they inflicted on their employees. Now, this problem exists all over the world. Many bosses care nothing about their employees. They make big promises and they don't deliver. And sometimes they refuse to pay what has been fairly earned. Now, the good news is that God knows this and God will judge all for their greed The bad news is we live in a fallen world, and this very well may happen to us. Now, starting in verse 7, we will see what our response should be if we have a boss like that. But before that, I want to take a note, uh, give a reminder to the Christian bosses out there listening today. You too have a master in heaven, and he's watching how you treat your employees, Treat them how you would want to be treated in their position. Show them understanding when they are facing struggles in their own lives. Treat them fairly. In fact, treat them even better than what is fair. What is something that Christian employees employers should do to show kindness to their employees? Think about that. How can you show kindness to your employee? We should be better bosses than the unbelievers around us. We should show real care and concern for those who work for us. So I hope that Christian bosses will take note of this and use the authority you've been given in the company you are in to make the lives of your employees better, not worse. Now, verse 5 says you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. What is luxurious living? Basically, it's living a very lavish lifestyle far higher than what is needed. It's indulging yourself in your flesh by buying everything possible to satisfy one's wants. Now, one would ask, what's the matter with living like this if you have the money? The problem is God gave you that money so that you could be a steward of it. Now, using it like that is a waste. How can a person justify using a dish that costs thousands of dollars when there are starving people in the world? How can a person justify owning multiple mansions when there are homeless people in the world? How can a person justify owning many luxury cars when many have no transportation at all. Now, sadly, there are many wolves in sheep's clothing who exploit the flock for their own earthly desires. We have all seen many of these televangelists who encourage the people who watch their shows to give them money. And then what do they do with this money? Many of them buy very expensive or luxurious items. Some of them buy multiple private jets. I've read of one who has a fleet of luxury cars. Many are living a lavish lifestyle in not giving glory to God. Now, when people do this, who use the name of Christ, they are a wolf in sheep's clothes. They're using their position as a pastor or as a teacher to exploit others and to further their own selfish ambitions. Now, this is a a bad testimony, and it repels people from the church. Now, I believe that God makes some Christians rich. In fact, there's a gift in the Bible called the gift of generosity. And I believe that God makes some Christians rich because he wants them to use those resources for helping others. I once had a friend who, it was almost like he had the Midas touch. He was really, really good at making money. Every business he tried and every deal he tried seemed golden. But this was also one of the most generous people I know. He used what God gave him to bless others. If there was anyone in need, he would not hesitate to help them out immediately. I think he had the gift of generosity and God blessed him because he was using the gift how God intended it to be used. Now, verse 5 says that there is a day of slaughter coming. God is going to judge those people who exploit the flock for their own selfish ambitions. So, an application for us evaluate your lifestyle, evaluate your giving. Is there anything that needs to be adjusted? Are you living a life of luxury or are you even having a number of luxurious things that you maybe spend too much money on? Could you cut out some of these luxurious things so that you can then give more into God's kingdom? These luxurious things we cannot take with us. Now, it's amazing that when we invest in God's kingdom, we can take something that is temporary, and then by investing it in God's kingdom, it can turn into something which is eternal. For example, when we buy or print Bibles and give them out, that costs money. And then people read those Bibles and people come to believe in Jesus. Their souls are saved because they had that Bible on. Your money for that Bible can then be turned into something eternal. Eternal. That's how God wants us to use our money for him and for his glory. Now verse 6 says you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So James mentions this as the last indictment of those who love money. We saw that they were exploiting those under them. They were mistreating their employees. They were living a life of luxury and self-indulgence in here. It even says that they murdered the righteous person to preserve their own way of life. Now, maybe this is a result of overwork or other factors. Certainly looking at history, we can see that slavery is one example of this. Many people bought and had many slaves in order to preserve their own way of life. And many slaves were killed to sustain the lifestyle of their captors. Now Solomon's words that there is nothing new under the sun is true. History repeats itself again and again. Now sometimes some rich people may indirectly kill the poor to become richer, and some irresponsible corporations do the same today by cutting corners. So this could be a direct or intentional thing, or it could be an indirect or unintentional thing, but a result of unfair practices. I watched a documentary about the company DuPont, Uh, and DuPont knowingly poisoned thousands of people with Teflon in order to make a profit. Now, many people had come to this and report that the products they were selling were actually poisoning their consumers. And when they heard this, they did nothing. Actually, I shouldn't say they did nothing. They actually hid these reports and covered it up. They were knowingly poisoning the people who were buying their products, but they kept doing it for years because it was highly profitable. Now, some estimates say that 99.7% of Americans have been poisoned with Teflon. Now, Teflon is a very interesting um, composite item because it will never break down. Once we have Teflon in our bodies, it will stay there forever. So this is just one example of a rich corporation caring about profit more than the lives of people. Now every rich person who exploits the poor to enrich themselves will one day face judgment from God. So we've looked at a few questions. Is it a sin to be rich? And the answer is no, it is not sin. But we should use the money God has given us as resources to build his kingdom. Is money good or bad? It's neither. It's neutral, but there is the temptation to love money, which is sin, which we should be careful about. And what should we use the money that God has given us for? Use it for building his kingdom. By all means, take care of your family and enjoy the good gifts that God has given to you. But also be sure that you are generous towards God's people. So if you're rich, what kind of lifestyle should you live? And how should you use your money? This is a question that you should ask yourself. If you're poor, what should your attitude be towards money? How can we guard against materialism? The world around us is so materialistic. People are chasing and pursuing money with everything in them. But we must not be like them God calls us to be different we must love God rather than loving money so why do you think the Bible talks about money so much throughout the Bible there are so many warnings about money and it's because we live in a world that is obsessed with money let us use money in the right way now we're going to move forward to verse 7 if you're poor what should you do Well James gives the answer he says be patient be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains now in verse 7 James gives the application to the poor people the poor people described in the first part of this chapter they are to be patient now Maybe you're holding the short side of the stick, meaning that you're being mistreated or overworked. What should you do? Go on a strike? Demand justice to be done? Complain? Well, James gives the answer. Be patient. Now, what does that mean? It First of all, it doesn't mean that you must stay at that job. Now, today we are blessed with a much more open economic society than back in the day of James. It's probably much easier now for us to change jobs. So if you live in an oppressive work environment, then it is perfectly reasonable for you to consider changing your job. Remember, in light of James four, after we pray to God for wisdom. But if you're in a situation that is very difficult, what should your attitude be? First of all, do not take vengeance. We will see here that God is the judge. You are not responsible for your boss's conduct, but you are responsible for your own. So we are to be patient with these people and be patient with the injustices in this world as we wait for the Lord's return. James describes the farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth, and he's patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. That reminds us we should be patient. Work hard and be patient and wait for God to bless that work. Now in verse 8, James says, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now Jesus is coming again. And when he does, he will judge all those who exploit others and he will reward those who use what God has given them for his glory. And so James says, establish your hearts or strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord. How can you do this? Well, we can turn to his word. We can be encouraged by the fact that true treasure is stored up in heaven, that true blessings come from God. That true happiness is a result of our relationship with God, not money. And that he loves us. And that he will hold people accountable for their actions. When you remember these truths from God's word, it encourages you. It strengthens you to persevere even through temporary difficult challenges here in this world. Now, this says that the coming of the Lord is at hand. From God's perspective, Jesus' second coming is near. The word often used in theology is imminent. It could happen at any time. But it's also certain. Now in comparison with eternity then it's very, very near. The entire church age is the last time period before Jesus will come again. It's been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus ascended. It is certainly nearer to a second coming today. So As we wait for that time when all of injustice will be dealt with, we establish or we strengthen our hearts with the truth, the truth from God's word. Now verse 9 tells us, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, all of these injustices done to believers by the rich might lead us to complain or grumble. Now, James warns us against having this twofold logic. He says the judge is standing at the door. He will hold these people accountable for their sins, and he will also judge us if we respond in the wrong way. Now, it should be an encouragement to us to note that the judge is coming soon. That's only true if he finds us doing what is right. Now this doctrine of the second coming is very, very important. Some consider eschatology or the the end times events to be something irrelevant with no relationship to our life today. They're wrong. They're wrong. Knowing that Jesus is coming again affects how we live our life today. Now here, our goal is to both study and obey the scriptures, knowing that every single thing in the Bible is relevant to our life today. The second coming motivates us to be patient and to respond to trials with trust and perseverance. We know that he will set everything right and it has a direct impact on how we live now. Now imagine children who are left at home by themselves for a period of time and the parent says, I could be back at any time, be ready. Will this not affect what they do? They know they need to keep the house clean. They need to be well behaved. They need to do their homework because their parents could come back at any time. But imagine if the parents said, we'll be back in 10 hours. What would the children do the first nine hours? They may very well play, make a mess of the house, and procrastinate on their homework or other chores thinking I'll wait and then in the last hour before they come back I will do the I will get ready right I'm gonna do my homework and make the house tidy for my parents return certainly some children may do that so this is why God did not tell us when Jesus is coming again because he wants us to be ready all the time we don't know the day or the hour And as a side note, if anybody comes and says they know when Jesus is coming, it is not true. They do not know. Only God himself knows. Jesus says not even the Son of Man knows the day or the hour. Now in verse 11, he says, Blessed we consider, oh sorry, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Now the opposite of enduring, what is it? It's giving up. Now we've already learned about the test of trials back in James 1. Blessed is the one who perseveres during trials. The concept here is similar. When you're facing some unfair or unjust things in society around you, an unfair boss, an unfair work environment, be patient, be steadfast, maintain your faith and your hope in the Lord because he is coming again. Now, the good news for us is that no matter what difficulty we're in the middle of, God loves us. He is compassionate and merciful and he has good plans for us. So, so far we've seen two main applications from the passage today. First, if you're rich, don't love money. Be generous. Use what God has given you for his glory. And second, if you are not rich, be patient. Be faithful to serve the Lord. If you're facing injustice, then be patient for Jesus' second coming. And Maintain your hope on him because he is compassionate, even though those around you may not be. Now to finish this passage, we're going to take a look at this last verse here in chapter 12. Sorry, verse number 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now remember that the book of James is a book about practically living out our faith. We've seen how to live out your faith in the from the perspective of money, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. And here again is another reminder about the tongue. Throughout the book of James, he talks about the tongue many, many times. Be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Um, And then also the chapter 3 about the tongue is like a restless evil full of deadly poison and few can tame it. He talks about the tongue again and again. And here he comes back to it and he reminds his readers that everyone is going to face God's judgment. So therefore we must be careful not to swear. James has taught throughout the book that speech is a window to the heart, a test of our true character. Now, God is always listening. And all the words that you speak, he's going to hold you accountable for. What's the application? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, this was especially important, perhaps, to the Jews of James' day. Now, the Jews... At James Day some of them had a habit of swearing deceitfully in fact they had an entire system set up where one kind of oath had to be kept and another didn't for example if you swore by the food on the altar or by the stones of the temple those oaths might not be binding but if you swore by the altar or by the temple then perhaps the oath would be binding now Why would they do such a thing? Because foreigners or the uninformed would not know which oath was binding and which oath was not. And when they heard a zealous merchant saying, I swear by the gold of the stones of the temple that I will do what, 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 then they would think, oh, okay, it must be true. Then later the merchant would say, psych, just kidding, I don't have to keep it because I didn't swear by the temple. I swore just by the stones of the temple. Ha! You didn't realize that that oath was not a binding one. It doesn't count. Almost like a person who says, I cross my fingers, and because I cross my fingers, then I don't need to keep the promise. And of course, school children will do this. They will make a promise, and then they will have their fingers crossed behind their back and say, that gives me an out. I don't have to do it. Well, they literally had an entire system of oaths set up like that. James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do you think God is going to accept such an excuse? I had my fingers crossed or I, I didn't sign my name to the contract. I just shook on it. It's not legally binding. I can get out of it. No. Now, contracts grow ever more complicated. And unfortunately... The unscrupulous use overly long and complicated contracts to trick people and to leave loopholes for breaking their word. Now here's a a simple application for us. Always read the contract before signing your name. Don't sign your name first and then later say, whoops. And so there's actually a biblical principle that once we give our word to do something, we need to keep it, even if it hurts. Uh, In the book of Proverbs, uh, I, I think I had the wrong reference here, but in the book of Proverbs there's a verse that says, he swears to his own hurt and he does not change. He does not change. Our yes should be yes and our no, no. That means we don't need to have different levels of promises. Anytime we say we would do something, we should do it, even if it hurts even if no one else is forcing you to keep it. When you make an agreement, but later find out it's unfavorable for you, do it anyway. You gave your word. Now, there's also another application here. That means you need to be careful when making a promise. This applies to even simple areas of life. If you're negotiating, don't say, the highest I will pay is $20, and then later pay more than that. That is not being honest. Think before you speak. And remember to consider God before making a promise. Just like James 4.15 says, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Before you put your name to the contract, before you give your word to your friend, ask yourself, is that the Lord's will? Should I really commit to doing that and only commit to doing it if you plan to follow through? We hope that you enjoyed this lesson of James 5, 1 through 12. And we also hope that it will help you in your use and in your view of money. To view money as a tool for building God's kingdom, not for living a life of luxury. To see our entire library of over 800 Bible studies, please visit our website at www.studyandobey.com.